Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Pam Houston, who is one of my favorite living writers and um, has been since her first book came out. I want to talk about that. She has a new book out called Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. It's a memoir, um, but it reads like the best fiction and it does the thing to you that the best fiction does. Um, it lingers and it changes you. And uh, that's a thing that Pam Houston's work has always done for me. Uh, we've known each other online for quite a while now, but have only met once really, only spent time together once. So it's a thrill to be here with you. Thanks for coming, Pam. My pleasure, Brian. Nice to be here. So um, I've been thinking a lot about where to start this conversation because I want to talk about Deep Creek, but because the book, which I read in basically a night and a half, uh, and you got a running commentary as I was reading it. Um, the book really is the story of what happened to you, finally understanding what happened to you when you know, you were a person who was told that you weren't worth very much and finally the world gave you a different message and it took you like 30 years to process it, right? That's exactly right. And in many ways, this book is, you know, kind of whatever happened to that Cowboys girl, you know? Um, so I think it's appropriate to talk a little bit about Cowboys more so than any of my other books. I think this book speaks back to that book. Me too. It's an answer to it in a way. And, um, you know, you say this thing and I, I think I might have mentioned this to you. It was amazing to me to read it. You know, so Cowboys came out, Cowboys and Rewings came out in 92. That's right. And that's the year I got married. I was 25 years old. And uh, you say in this book, you say when that book came out, a lot of people fell a little bit in love with me. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that hit me so hard because that is what happened to me, right? It was what happened to so many of us who were at a certain time in our lives who read this brave book that was an, uh, a collection of stories, but it was very clearly also um, an explication of the inner life of somebody deciding what it would mean to live and to trust and to love and to leap. That's right. And I felt like this book uh, really is the, was the answer to the question, um, was, that, was it right for you to still have some hope? In these times. Yeah. Well, then and now. Then and now. That's right. I mean, it's a different set of challenges now, right, than it was then. I mean, then I was so insulated with my own confusion and grief about my childhood. I mean, I, I hadn't even, I mean, I hadn't had any therapy. <laughs> you know, I, hadn't, I hadn't even begun to process that stuff. I was just throwing myself off of cliffs and going down rivers at high water as a way to process, you know. So that was a different a different set of ways to deal with trauma or post-traumatic stress. Um, now, you know, I'm grown up and I lived through all that and I've had a lot of therapy and, you know, now the challenges seem more global. You know, obviously the climate catastrophe and the political situation and how to have hope in the face of all of that. I, I never, um, that's all really clear in the book. And you, what's great is the book is about you risking everything to try to, have and keep this incredible ranch. Um, and it's a lot about faith and trust and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff. There's this, there's this passage in the book though, that made me cry. And it, and as someone who's read all your books, you know, and it's funny, you, you mentioned 
then Cowboys, uh, you, you know, you were trying to process in your life the trauma, but without even knowing you were trying to process it, because the book doesn't deal with it at all, really. No. The next book dealt with your mother a lot, right. which was purported to be fiction, and that dealt with your mom a ton. Right. Um, I remember reading it and thinking, oh, this answer's a big piece of mm-hmm. a certain kind of the, the question. But there's, in, in Cowboys Are My Weakness, the, the story in that, that launched you was How to Talk to a Hunter, and which is a second person story about um, uh, a woman talking to herself about the compromises she's willing to make in order to be with the kind of man she wants to be with. And there's this incredible love in that book and in your first few books for uh, the type of man who doesn't give a shit about anything but the outdoors and his own pursuits and your own willingness to prove you were badass enough to take it. Is that a fair characterization? I think that's a good summary, yes. But there's this moment in this book, and so as as we do with the people whose fiction and we love, you know, I've connected so strongly to your journey. And then I got to this passage in this book where you are now a teacher and you're with two students. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them, it's clear to you, is even though you don't, she doesn't say it, is grappling with a lot of the shit you're grappling with, right? A lot of the shit I was grappling with. That you were grappling with in Cowboys, right? Because I want to talk about how we got here. So I'm going to, I never do this, but I'm going to just read a passage if that's okay. Sure. Um, Now Kyle is looking at me like I've crawled inside her brain. We're all silent a while. Maggie's got a good man is what she finally manages to say. I nod, I don't doubt it. Maggie's grief for her mom is palpable, piercing, but is not full of the shadows and confusion that come when a little girl is treated badly in a hundred different ways by fathers or father figures, that insidious, everlasting training. I don't know anything about your past, I say to Kyle, and I'm not trying to tell you how to live. Somebody could have said all this to me when I was your age, I'm sure somebody did, and it would have probably just made me double down. I had to do it as long as I had to do it, chase those nasty cowboys. I smile and Kyle smiles, but her eyes never do. I'm just saying, I guess, there's another version after this version to look forward to. Because of wisdom or hormones or just enough years going by, if you live long enough, you quit chasing things that hurt you. You eventually learn to hear the sound of your own voice. Apache groans, maybe signaling the end of the conversation, so I drain my Pellegrino and reach for the check, but Kyle stills my hand. What made it change, she asks, for you? There are so many possible answers, including $30,000 worth of therapy, several new age healing ceremonies, one involving a man who set his chest on fire and another involving a dustbuster, five published books, and a pre-cancer diagnosis. But I say the thing that feels first, truest, and most long-term. I realized I could make my own life, I say. I could have my own ranch. I finally realized I could be the cowboy. <laughs> what did it feel like to live that and then to write about it? <laughs> well, you know, the ranch, um, the ranch has taught me so many things. Uh, I've owned it for... 25 years now, I bought it for 5% down in a signed hardcover copy of Cowboys Are My Weakness. The widow who sold it to me carried the note because no bank would have lent me $5. I had to hustle and hustle. I wrote anything that anybody would pay me for to pay those, to make those early mortgage payments, which as you can imagine were astronomical. But the real learning has been in making a commitment, you know, in in showing up for the ranch when it's hard or when there's five feet of snow and everything's broken 
or there's a sick animal and I can't get out my driveway and I have to figure out how to give it the shots myself or I have to fix the outside frost-free water pump, which is not frost-free. You know, making the kind of commitment that 120 acres at high altitude asked me to make, it, it, it taught me to show up. My animals taught me about companionship and power structures and how to die and how to be with the dying. Um, And, you know, when I wrote that line, be my own cowboy, you know, I sort of, as you can imagine, rolled my eyes at myself, right? Like, oh, sure. But there's real truth in it. And and the first time I read that line aloud was I teach at Esalen and they I'm there every summer. So they've heard this book as it found its way through many, many, many revisions to itself. But when I read that book to about 160, 170 people, like the whole room went up, you know, <laughs> and it was like, OK, well, I guess so. I guess I'm allowed to say that but after all. Even as you rolled your eyes at yourself and it's great in your book, you, you take pains to talk about where you're not expert, yeah. where you still need oh, help. So many places. And you shout those people out. And it's one of the magical parts of this book is are the interstitial sections where you talk about the community that's required, the people who come in and who are necessary for you to live this life. But I'm trying to also ask you about catharsis for a Mm -hmm. second, and Mm -hmm. then we'll go backwards. Because the reason I cried reading that passage, and I'm not that easy a crier at books, was it felt like forgiveness and acceptance and the final a final moment of not blaming yourself for your of the ways in which you were abused. I think that's right, but I haven't really even understood that till the last few weeks when I've been on tour talking about the book. Really? I do. I think that's right because what happened in the writing, okay, so when I so the first draft of this book was all ranch all the time. It was buying hay, chopping wood, lambing season, the guy who comes to plow my driveway. It was- It was all the Vronsky parts of the- Totally, totally. It was, it wasn't like, is, this isn't about you. This is about this piece of ground. This is a memoir of place, you know? And that was the first draft. And then it was my agent who read the first draft and said, isn't this where you talk about what really happened to you as a kid? Right. And I said, God, have I done anything else? It seems like that's all I've done in my whole career. And she says, no, not really. Never went right at it. So so then I added a lot of that stuff, which wasn't hard because I didn't want to reveal that. My parents are deceased. It, It wasn't a big moment. You know, it wasn't a terrible decision to can I reveal this stuff? It wasn't that. It was more I was afraid to be boring, you know, and and I realized I had a teacher one time who had said the, this sentence, and this is the way, I mean, I'm a teacher, and I am so aware of the things I say, more and more and more, the older I get, to students. Because this one teacher said to me, you know, you can't swing a dead cat anymore without hitting an abuse story. And, and I laughed, or whatever I did, in the moment, in the room, and I never even realized until writing this book that that had gotten inside me, not to say, oh, don't reveal your secrets, to say, it's gonna be boring if you do. So, so that happened. And then, over the eight years of writing the book, 
you know, I became like everyone increasingly aware of the climate catastrophe we're in the middle of, realized I couldn't in good conscience write a book about my little piece of paradise at 9,000 feet in the last valley in America that's going to go underwater without addressing, you know, how do we love the damaged planet? How do we continue to sing about it while being realistic and facing our own grief about what we've done to it? And then, and this is, you know, this is the beautiful thing about writing. Then I understood how those two things were completely related. That the, the process of writing this book and even talking about it has made me see so clearly that, that you know, this, this idea I keep pushing in the book about, about being joyful and loving the damaged world while we hold on to the grief is exactly what I'm doing with myself as a human being, as a human being, I'm, I'm loving my damaged self. I'm loving this person that my father did all this damage to while at the same time, acknowledging the damage. And, and the way those two things came together in the book, really, I didn't see it coming. (laughs) Well, but you, you do, you do single out, uh, the kindness. It's fascinating to me the way you use nature, your love of nature and animals to reveal special kindness of humans that you're still um although you don't as someone who went through it you went through you know people can disappoint you sure and there's a great story of that kind of disappointment when those people come to take care of the ranch and in the book really devastating piece of the book for me to you know to read um especially as like uh the Ted Bundy documentaries out there and all this stuff. And you realize the, the, the way people lie to themselves about the stuff that they, they do. But I was struck by your willingness to trust and love, especially in the context of the natural world. Right. How did you find that? Gosh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I was... I, I might have been born with it. It might have been a thing that just came with me, or it might have been from very early going outside. There was a, a man who I read about in another book, not this book, but Colonel Bob Miller, who took all us neighborhood kids who were all having the terrible things happen to us in our individual suburban houses. He would take us camping for the weekend, and he made us ride under blankets and told us we were going out west. And he he would say, oh, we just crossed the Mississippi and we just crossed the wide Missouri and we were really just going to a city park. But I guess what I'm interested in is that there's a sort of, you've consciously put yourself into a situation where there are going to be times that you need to count on others. Sure, that's true. And that comes across in the bush, whether it's somebody driving across the state to do something for you in the midst of the storm because they knew you would, or whether it's someone showing up in the middle of the night to do a welfare check or someone helping you deal with a cow elk who might be missing. Uh, there is, well, maybe that's what you make yourself vulnerable. I hear you. Um, (laughs) well, I want to understand it. Okay. Okay. Well, I think in the Cowboys are my weakness days. I needed to test myself, right? I needed to put myself in super dangerous outdoorsy situations in Whitewater rivers at high water at shoots on, you know, out of bounds shoots and ski areas, all that stuff 
to see if I could stand up to the challenge. That was me creating the danger in my childhood and trying to see if I could. If you were tough enough. If I was tough enough. Yes. Now yeah. it seems like I know I'm tough enough. I've been tough enough. I've made it to 57. Um, so what maybe what I'm doing is, and I don't know that I'm testing people, but I'm putting myself in a situation that gives humans the opportunity to show me their goodness. Yes, that's what I'm struck by. Yeah. That you're willing to remind yourself, you're willing to put yourself in situations right. where uh, you, it's not that you need to be bailed out because it's clear you're very resourceful, but where the kindness of another person is the very thing that you need when it shows up. Whether it's saying to the vet, I just need you to come here instead of me going to you. Right. And his arriving is the thing that lets you allow your dog to go. That's right. And and also the guy who, who gave me that dry-aged steak for free. Oh, that's an amazing moment. I think of him all the time. I mean, people... Has he read the book? And I not... Can you give it to him? I will. I haven't been home, but I will. Next time I'm in Boulder, I'll take him one. But, but it's, it's, you know, this is the time we're in. We're in this time where people are dying for an opportunity to show up for each other. To prove that it's not the, the 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 dominant narrative, right? And in my town, people do show up for each other. You know, it's a small town, and I mean, I mean, here in Brooklyn, people show up for each other. Let's face it, people still show up for each other. So, and I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist. I always have been. So even though I am quicker to trust the love and dedication and consistency of animals than I am to humans. I see it in humans and it makes me inordinately happy. When that guy gave me that steak, I can't tell you, like I can still feel it in my chest. And that was years ago when he, he took that steak off the pile. It is an amazing moment in the book because you've just been through a, ter a disappointment, bad moment. You explain what's going on sort of offhandedly. And he's like, why didn't you say so sooner? And he does this nice thing for you. Yeah. Um, it's... Well, you also, though, and I love what you said about the times. I was thinking about this. I just went to pick up donuts for us and, uh, at Dew's Donuts, which is these amazing donuts here in Brooklyn, and Wiley Dufresne, who owns the place, I showed up, and we know each other. We're friendly, and he, he saw me. He's like, ah, let me make you an egg sandwich, and it wasn't for any reason other than a guy he kind of liked walked in, and he was like, here, I want to do something special for you. It was, and people are willing to... Um, little moments of kindness, which matter a lot. Oh. Little moments of saying, let me give you something warm. And your book is filled with it. But, but there's another part of this, which is what makes that stuff so powerful, which is the ways in which people have been cruel. You know, uh, and I, as a writer, you know, you at your graduate school. Mm. So I, I would love you now to just talk about where you were when you were writing Cowboys Are My Weakness, like where you were in the world. And give a few minutes to talk about the culture at the graduate school that you were in, and I'll tell you why. Um, I have a daughter at college now as a writer, and uh, my, my son's a writer too. We're all writers in my family. But, you know, uh, my personal bugaboo is people who hold themselves out as expert. Not only, not that they're going to be teachers or help you, but that they have decided that their aesthetic is the only aesthetic. 
and they're they have an inability to uh, understand what levers might actually be firing inside them, and and so I would love you to talk for as long as you can about who you were, where you were, what you were fighting, and in fact how those stories were received originally mm-hmm. before the world decided you were a genius. So, <laughs> you know, and what that felt like. So just talk and I'm going to be quiet. Okay. I don't know if the world has decided I'm a genius, but, but, um, I, in my grad program, um, I was not, my work was not championed. I, um, the very first day of grad school, the very first day of workshop. Um, our teacher came in, this was in Utah. Uh, our teacher came in and said, here are the rules. No trees, no snow, no mountains, no skiing, no eyes and no female bodily excretions. Mm. And, you know, there we were in the mountains of Utah. (laughs) So you, you can understand his, uh, that he was tired of those subjects, I suppose. I mean, uh, But, you know, Cowboys Are My Weakness is, of course, an aria to all of those things, probably on purpose. And um, no, I was I was my work was soundly and roundly disliked um, by my graduate school professors, though not by my cohort. And I think, you know, that's an important thing to say for people who are going to school and learning creative writing, you know, that sort of lateral mentorship among the writers who you are studying with can be such a saving grace. But, um, but no, my work was not liked. I have an evaluation that says Pam should find something else to do with her hands. Uh, Repeat that, please. You're eval- <laughs> no, no, listen, because you just threw that off because now you're looking at it. I want to understand what it felt like, Pam, to be there doing this work finally coming off the road in a way to try to do this. Like, can bring us in. It felt exactly like being in my childhood home. That's the truth of it. So I was completely used to it. Which was an, abu- an incredibly abusive, physically and sexually, and then your mother, who didn't sexually abuse you, not only allowed it to happen, but abused you in these uh, men- other mental ways. That's all true. So graduate school for me, I was so used to that position of having to be like, no, no, I really am okay. Uh. No, look, I, look, I have this story to tell that, that graduate school, honestly, it, it, if it was traumatic, it was exactly traumatic in the ways my entire childhood had been traumatic. The break from that was my undergrad experience at Denison, which was all love and goodness. And you can do whatever you want in the world as long as you keep the greater good in mind. But grad school was just back to what I was used to. And, and I just plugged along because that's what I did. You know, I, I, my father broke my femur when I was four. I spent the entire rest of my childhood thinking he might kill me any day. I mean, a broken femur is a big deal. You can die from it. So I, I thought I would die. So I, <laughs> so I plugged along, doing my best, trying to get out. I had wonderful people along the way who said, if you do this and this and this, you can get out of here alive. And so I did. And then, and then I did get to Denison, which was heaven and, and positivity and idealism and liberal arts. And it was like this other world. And then I somehow got myself right back into the 
to to the ugliness um, at Utah. And but you know, I had I had good friends. Um, I, you know, I don't I don't feel like a victim of any of this, Brian. You know, I I, I feel like like I knew the landscape. I knew how to survive in a place where everybody was telling me, you're not good enough. You're not going to make it. This is stupid. This is your glorifying an archaic form of masculinity was another expression uh, that got hurled at me. They didn't understand what you were actually doing. No. Right. So that's important because the how to talk to a hunter does not glorify an archaic <laughs> form of masculinity. What it does is it says... Um, this is incredibly seductive. Yeah. This really, these people know how this works. Right. Don't let it work. Right. Uh, I understand why you let it work. I have tremendous empathy for you that you fall for it. I've been falling for it. I probably will for the next 10 years, but we have to find something else. Right. Right. I mean, that's what that's saying. Right. But they didn't understand. They couldn't understand it. What did the writing feel like to you then though? Were you able to escape in it, Pam? Did you know all right, I, how did you shut those voices? Because most people have a really hard time shutting the voice out that tells them they're worthless. Now, I understand you've practiced that your whole life, but what's it actually practically like to do that? Um, I think what happens when I write... With that book, you know, I, I didn't even know how to write. You know what I mean? I didn't even know who I was as a writer. It felt more like a kind of puking. It, it felt like a kind of, you know, getting out the things that had been in there living for 27 or 28 years. You know, it, it, it felt like a, like a, like a living thing inside me that had to get out. And so when I was writing it, it was almost like I was completely car compartmentalized from those voices. I mean, I would worry about those voices later, if I had to read it aloud or if I had to turn it I mean, into a workshop. When you finish, you'd write a draft and then be like, oh fuck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Shit. exactly, exactly. I was like, they're gonna hate this. And you know, that I still have that. You know, I still have that all the time. Well, there's, this book was rejected at first, wasn't it? It wasn't loved, um, the, the, yes. Okay, so wasn't there a version of this that was Absolutely. rejected? Yes, it was. And, because you emailed me then, I remember. And then... I mean, it, well, let me just say, to, for clarification, it wasn't flat out rejected but it was definitely not going to press in anything like the form it was. Yeah, that you were told like, because how, I'm wondering if you then had to lean on those same tools. Sure. No, with one thing that happened with this book after that first rejection, because because what happened is that, that my editor had an, a book in her mind that wasn't the book that I wrote and she said I didn't write the book I proposed but in my mind I had written precisely the book I had proposed I mean precisely yes so so and her book <laughs> the book in her mind was not a book I could write because it because I didn't live that life and I didn't know how so we were kind of at an impasse for a while at least that's how it felt to me and and I had to get okay with the idea that this book would never come out. And, I, and that's what I tell my students all the time. I say, you know, the point is to write it. The point is to express this relationship you have with this subject. And if no one ever publishes it, you have to be okay with that because the beauty is in the process. Well, suddenly, right, suddenly, <laughs> suddenly forced, it was me. And you're a famous writer for us to live, <laughs> which is, uh, so what did you do with that? How did you then... How did you get, people ask me this question all the time about when you get harsh notes. Yes. How do you decide, how do you get to the place of being dispassionate enough to evaluate them and then take some steps? 
Well, um, I love to be edited, but I didn't know how to, I, I couldn't do, I didn't know how to, to even access these c criticisms. I really didn't. So I just went quiet for a while, like six months. I just couldn't, I was really paralyzed. Without writing? Well, writing some other stuff, right. but no, without fixing this. Um, I talked to my agent and my agent said, there's a woman in our office named Michelle Mortimer who's great on the page. Can I give it to her? And I said, yes. And I didn't know Michelle Mortimer. Michelle Mortimer gave me six notes that were the best six notes I have ever gotten in my life. I did all six things she said, which were not at all related to all the criticism I'd gotten from my editor. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think the outcome was related, but she just said, here's she six things it. to it get. She it unlocked it. And then I did those six things. And really then there was a bunch of little stuff, but that was the change. And, and I just needed somebody else to come in and say, here's how to fix it. And, and I've never had an experience like that ever. I mean, I take editing well. I like to edit. I like to make things better. But this idea that, like, I think of her now as like this, the Oz. The Whisperer. The Whisperer, yeah. the Wizard of Oz. Like, it's also, you took six months. Yeah. I want to get back. You took six months. That, the answer, the question I was asking is six months. It uh, to get to a place where you were ready to somehow deal with it. I was, I was paralyzed. And I was... And, you know, again, I don't blame anybody for that, but it was, it was super Did it traumatic. Your confidence? Oh, God. Of course. I mean, I'm not very confident, Brian. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I, you know, writers aren't meant to be confident. Come on. You know, we're not confident. If yeah. we're confident, then we're assholes, you know? Yes. Well, yes. The confident <laughs> writer going out and spouting <laughs> off at a party for sure. But we have to, I have to gin up a certain amount of swagger to do the work sure that's right do, well that's that you know what i mean that's the sure. dichotomy of course of course we're incredibly vulnerable right after well that's what i meant about cowboys I, yes. we have to develop a certain amount of swagger to do the work we yes. have to we have to be able to shut out what we know is going to come at us and sure and and i when i was doing the six things like when i read them on the page i thought this is marvelous, but I still didn't think it was going to work. I don't know how to do it. Right. You're saying and you, you just didn't know if you knew how to execute it? No, I just... Or you didn't I know just, if it would be transformative of the piece? I thought... I thought I we would never get to a place where this book resembled the book my editor had wanted, no matter what I did to I it. I mean, I just want to get back, go back to saying the book is remarkable. That's what's so amazing to me about this is that the book is... Um, a joyous book and um you know I, I i it's transported me in the in the best way and i'm someone who um as much as you love the natural world is how sort of like freaked out by the natural <laughs> world i am and so uh it, it um although reading it maybe i don't uh there is a cow elk reference in this season of billions <laughs> that's good to know directly because <laughs> i read about that oh, excellent. in your book and then i had to be like wait how's a cow and elk and it was fascinating for a New York City guy to have to like, you know. That's awesome. Yeah, to have to uh, figure out. Um, but going back to when you were younger and at, and at grad school. So you, I think you said something like even as the book was getting published and you were starting to get published in places, they were still not. Oh, yeah. No, I was, an, I was an bit. embarrassment to them. They said I set 
feminism back 50 years. Wait, who said this? <laughs> different professors. You mean uh, to you? To me. Oh, yes. And, and As the book was coming out? As it was out. As it was selling. As you got into Best American Short Stories? Exactly. Because that's what I read. I think that I... I that was the year, 92, it got it. It was in Best That's American right. Short Stories, How to That's Talk to 100. It was like the first story in it or something. That's right. I mean, I remember reading it in there and then going to buy the book and losing my mind, you know. Yeah. And um, so they read, read that. Here's why this is important, right? Pam doesn't have to call herself a genius, and let's take that word off the, off the table, but that's a story that 30 years later is still widely read and people really care about it, right? It's true. So that... That book has had the longest, well, most beautiful life. Well, and now, like, mothers are giving it to their daughters. Like, yeah, and it was a great joy when Amy <laughs> Amy wrote I Smile Back, my wife Amy, and um, Cash Sarasofen at one point has that book, and it was important to us that she has the book. I yeah. think I wrote you when we did that. Yeah. But, um, but I think it's important to know that that story that was criticized and was lambasted by these people, right, it lives 30 years later. Mm. And uh, I find that beautiful and inspiring. Does it, do you have in you, because you did still, you are still, I would say, although you say that those people didn't affect you, I mean, you I are still say writing them. Well, you're saying you were used to, I mean, you're still writing about them and sort of explaining to us the ways in which they were wrong. So it so obviously still has some holds, right? Of course. No, it affected me. I, I I'm just saying, I mean, what I was saying was I have a way to go about my business regardless of what people are saying about me. It, there will be a time when the, the book or the story has to go out in the world and then I have to face that criticism. But there is a way that I can X that out and go into my studio and do, uh, I, I've only had a studio for two years. You, but, well, you write about it in the book, right? But go into my writing spot, whether it's my kitchen table or now my little cabin, and, and just, and just plow ahead because that because I learned how to do that when I was a kid. And that's what I say about, you know, about about my abuse history. Like, who would I be without that? You know, I, I had parents who didn't want to be parents. I went out and found better parents in, in the natural world, in the mountains and the rivers. They were great parents. And 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 would I be a writer? Like, would I have had the fortitude to stand up to what I've faced as a writer if if I hadn't had that training? of how to just hunker down and go about my business? Yes, by the way. Would I? Yes. Well, I don't know I if that's so. true. Well, I don't know. I had, you know, because I, like, I think you can have loving, caring parents. <laughs> I do. And, I, I think you can too. you can. Um, I hope so. I don't think it's a prerequisite. I don't think abuse is a prerequisite. No, I don't mean in general. No, I mean, who would I be? Right, you personally. Yeah. Well, I thought it was fascinating that the way you first introduced your dad in the book is by his sense of humor and his brains. Yeah. That's what you leave with. You say you got those things from him. Your That's facility with words, your sense of humor, and probably 10 IQ points, you say, or something yeah. like that in the yeah. book, right? Yeah. And then you go into the things he would do to you. And then you kind of casually, and as a writer, I'm interested in this technique-wise, you sort of talk about how you and your dad would still talk on the phone in the last 20 years of his life. Right. In a sort of casual way. Right. And I... In a way, you don't ever say, like, you totally forgave him or anything like that. Though I think forgiveness is a huge part of the book. But what were you trying to, what are you trying to tell us by talking about him calling you to tell you about his tennis matches? Why is that, what, 
what are we, what are you communicating? Oh, so many things. I mean, I think, I think so many of us have been hurt so badly by the people who raised us. I mean, I think that's as common as a two car garage, you know, I, and, and I don't feel special about my abuse at all. I, I, I'm a teacher of writing. I see people's abuse stories every day and I see stories that make mine seem like a walk in the park. You know, I, what I wanted from this book and I didn't know I wanted it, where, what I was pushing on, which again, I, I wasn't aware of. I was trying to write a book about the ranch, you know, but what I was pushing towards, I don't think it's forgiveness. I, I don't really feel like they're mine to forgive. Like I, I don't, or maybe it's because I'm not religious exactly. So forgiveness isn't a word that comes to me. What comes to me is acceptance. You know, they, in their own way, they both did their best. And and while, you know, my father did these terrible things to my body and to my mind for that matter, um, you know, I think of him, like, I think of, I think of him fondly often. I think of his humor and, and the weird way he wouldn't say goodbye when he hung up and, and the way he taught me to love sports, which I still love, problematic as they are, uh, you know, and, and to go, you know, my father was game. He always wanted to get in the car and go see. And I have that. Like, so I don't, and my mother too. I mean, I loved my mother, even though she was a very, very complicated and difficult person. So, so to me, you know, I thought I had written about all this and I thought it was over. And the fact is I hadn't scratched the surface. And this book has allowed me to say, look at this life I made as a result of these two people for better and worse. There's all kinds of good things I got from my parents. And I guess that's why you'd still had the phone calls. Sure. Because I mean, he, he existed. I was his only relative. He was lonely. You know, he was funny. But he never apologized or owned the behavior to you, no. right? And also, and did you ask for that no. later in life? No. Why? Um, I don't ask for stuff like that. <laughs> I don't ask for stuff like did that. Did he read your books? He said he did. I don't know if he really did. After Waltzing the Cat, my mother was dead well, at that point. Waltzing the Cat is all about your mom. I mean, I yeah. read that it's all about your mom. And, but, but it does talk about the abuse a little bit in Waltzing the Cat. And he said he read it. And I said, well, what'd you think? And he said, I thought you were a little hard on your mother. Right. That's all he said. Right. I, I have, you know, to me, it's, I mean, I mean, here's the, tr- I mean, if we're, if we're being truthful, I, I didn't take him to task for any of it because I was still trying to please him till the moment he dropped dead. That's the truth. I was still trying to like know the batting averages of the Phillies to try to please him. I, you know, I was still trying to say the thing that would make him laugh. That's the power that that has. Sure. Yeah. That's amazing to understand now. Yeah. Would you probably? And and I still would. If he were, if he were here today, I'd be trying to make him laugh. Right. I'd be trying and I'd be trying to prove to him that I had made it, that by even by his standards. What, the, his financial standards? Sure. He, well, and money. Look, I have a ranch. Well, I was reading a thing about Thoreau the other day, and um, I'd forgotten how much uh, Walden is about money. 
<laughs> yeah. I just had forgotten and then I yeah, read yeah. something someone wrote. I wish I could credit the person. I don't, I don't remember. It was in the last week. But I read something that was really talking about um, how Thoreau talked about money. And this book, you do a wonderful job of talking about money. And you trace it first to your father's cheapness, um, how it bothered you, but how you took some of it on. Mm -hmm. And then this relationship, you know, you say a bunch of different times that there was a period of time where you were willing to do anything to earn money for, for the ranch. I was afraid I would lose it. And uh, most of us are uncomfortable talking about money. Mm. You're very specific about the money you made, the way you paid off the loan, the way you were ripped off. You're, was was that a conscious? Was that a? Uh, it had to be a conscious choice, I, I imagine. And, and why did you decide you wanted to be so clear about the money? Well, it wasn't agended, you know. I don't think. Um, it, Great word. It was. It was simply that you know women aren't supposed to talk about money. Uh, the, Buying the ranch for 5% down was a ridiculous thing to do on so many levels. It turned me into a hustler. It made me believe I could support myself. I could be my own cowboy. I could, I could, I could, I could not lose it. It also expresses the kindness of the woman who sold it to me. I mean, she used to go to town and say, you know, she makes those payments and on time. Yes. And I'm really proud of that. And, and, and I, I'm proud that as an artist, you know, I was able to, to make those payments. Everybody says, you know, I hear this. I was just listen, uh, listening to Alexander Chi's wonderful memoir, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. <clears throat> and um, he says, you know, whatever you do, don't buy a house. Don't encumber yourself. And, and I hear that constantly. Well, for me, it was just the opposite. I had this massive encumbrance, so I had to sit in my chair and get the writing done. And that's how the books got written. Or I would have been out hiking, maybe. Like, you know, I, I, I'm really proud of it. And I also think, um, you know, I think... I think money is a fact of our lives and it's a fact of our psychology and it gets into everything. And, and I'm, you know, I'm, uh, my path from, from the cradle to the grave has been, <clears throat> has been trying to become more and more generous. And you can't really talk about that without talking about money. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to be generous, but you can't pretend money doesn't exist. But right in the conversation about your dad, of course, we have to talk about the fact that the money he left you is money you refused to spend. Right. <laughs> and still do. <laughs> you still haven't spent that money? No, of course right. not. <laughs> As some sort of a, I mean, you said you'd still be trying to prove it to him. I mean, there it is. You're still, that to me is. I'm not going to waste that money on yeah. something frivolous, dad. <laughs> but it's also like, I don't need it. Yeah, maybe. Right. Maybe that's You right. don't need his money. I don't know what it is. Everyone has an opinion about this money that just sits there. I called it my father's money forever. And my therapist would be like, it's your money. He's dead. Um, it, yeah, there it sits. Still. Still. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. So uh, I, I do want to talk, you know, you brought up women aren't supposed to talk about money. And I, I just, when I was thinking about talking to you today, I wrote down that I think it's arguable that you're, you're the best writer of the natural world writing right now. And that... I mean, John Krakow writes great about the natural world, but I, I think you can make the argument that you're the, the person who sort of does it in the most compelling way. But and I was thinking that if you were a man, you'd be talked about like Hemingway. 
in that regard. And I think being a woman who writes about the natural world the way you do, not in the, I'm going to travel the globe and find myself way. No. There's some, I mean, there's some going on a boat and seeing the sky. But basically, you're talking about the natural world and the way traditionally male writers talked about putting on their boots and going outside and shooting a dying animal and saving the thing from fire. And um, I'm wondering when you realized as a person, you talked about it a little, but as a person and as an artist that the outdoors and the relationship to its healing powers and its potential destructiveness was your great subject. Like, uh, you know, in the way that I'm 25 years in and I understand that I have to write about these men who think they can outsmart the world for some reason. I, that, that I'm writing about that and writing about gambling and I'm writing about the ways in which charm and charisma can uh, manipulate and why and what it does, right? We all find out later what we've been writing about. We don't know when we're doing it. Right. <clears throat> but you've really been doing this now for a long time. That's right. And, and so how did, it, how did it surface for you that this was what you were going to spend your life thinking about? I think, honestly, it was when I went out west, um, which was between college and grad school. And I just saw the Colorado Plateau. I, you know, I saw the mountains and the canyons. And, <clears throat> and, um, and it just seemed like, my subject. I mean, it, 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 people said, you know, the voice, <laughs> the, the artist voice, people, I like that. I wonder, I wonder what people I mean. Uh, the artist voice in my head said, you know, just, just put some humans in here and something will happen to them. You know, it, it was, it was my awe at the magnificence and magnificence and the complexity of the Western landscape. It, it just blew my mind. And it also changed how I felt in my body to be there. Like it, it, it relaxed something or freed something up. And, um, and it never, I never get tired of writing it. You know, it's completely my go-to, you know, and, and I never get, I never, I mean, there are times when I worry that I've done it too much. Oh, there she goes again about the aspen trees. But, but in fact, you know, I can always love description of a natural landscape, particularly a Western natural landscape. Um, it, it, it makes me happy, literally happy to write it. And people have been saying, oh, you, you describe the ranch so well. And I think, well, I hope so. You know, I've been looking at it for 25 years. Like if I can't describe that, what can I describe? So I just feel like when I went from, when I went out West as a recent college graduate and put myself in that landscape that was it just broke my creative process open and and I really credit it like it's the thing that made me believe I could write I mean I wrote really crappy stories as an undergraduate and I wrote when I was six but it was like I I had a subject then and you and, recognize that as such yes and also that that the set of metaphors that is basically the Colorado Plateau and the Rocky Mountains whatever those were related to something in my interior landscape that wanted expression. And I knew I, I could get there through that set of metaphors. And that includes, you know, the cow elk and the mountain lion and the whatever, but it's, but it's the landscape primarily. And when did you start recognizing, I think your word for it is these glimmers. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, when I teach writing, which I do in many different 
situations across the country. Um, I begin with this idea of what I call a glimmer, which is basically something out in the physical world. Doesn't have to be the natural world because often I'm not in the natural world, but but something in the physical world that I see, that I notice, that attracts my attention, and I feel a, a feeling of resonance. Really, in my chest is where it exists. It's a, it, we'd call it a vibration out out in California, uh, but it's like a vibrational quality and. And it just means that that thing in the world is related to something in me that wants expression and I'm going to be able to use it. A really good example of it is I was uh, in Sun Valley and it was a Valentine's Day cocktail party in my honor. If you can imagine three, 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 you know, more unpleasant dependent clauses going together. Um, but anyway, I was at this cocktail party and on the table was, uh, the caterer had made a big frozen bottle of ice sculpture with a bottle of kettle one inside it and a dozen heads of red roses frozen into this mountain bottle shape. And I couldn't take my eyes off it. I walked around it and around it. I My eyes wandered to it while I was having awkward cocktail party conversations. I took out my phone and took a picture of it and, you know, put it in my computer, put it away. That's a glimmer. That's a classic glimmer. A couple years later, I was writing a story about being on a Cape Air flight, little nine-seater up to Saranac Lake, New York. Plane gets coated with ice. It's just me and the pilot. Finally, I say to him, we okay? Like, this doesn't seem right. (laughs) And he says, oh, you know, I think when I point the nose down, it's going to pop the ice right off. (laughs) Anyway, so I'm writing that glimmer, which is a glimmer of a different kind. And I think of that bottle and I write the bottle. Well, it turns out that, you know, my mom was an actress. She was a stage actress. She drank herself to death with vodka. Our house was always filled with the heads of dozen red roses. So, you know, there she is again. Um, But, but that's, that's how the glimmer works. That was my frozen dead mother. And you had that. I and didn't know it. Right. But you I knew that there was something. I knew there was it, something. And the feeling it. happens. And, and that can happen if you overhear people talking. Right. Right. Sure, because there's an example in this book where you mention one. You mention hearing a conversation. Oh, of course. That's right. a glimmer. A glimmer can be a conversation. A glimmer can be almost anything. And you collect and, and so you just collect them and then go to them as you need them. And then I put them together and make stories out of them. That's how I make stories. I don't think I have an idea for a character. I don't ever think I'm going to write a story about. I say, I'm going to sit down and roll around in the glimmers and see which ones pop up and want to be together. So talk a little more about that. Do you have a schedule of writing? No. So how does it work for you? (laughs) How does it work for you? Um, I write, I mean, I teach a lot and my teaching is so important to me. So that cuts down on the writing time. but writing will push on me and I avoid it and avoid it and avoid it. And then one day it seems more terrible not to write than to write. And then I start writing. But you don't know what you're, you mean you just have the feeling I have to write. Yeah. Or do you have an idea? Mm, I wouldn't want to say I never have an idea, but I often don't. This is important. So often it's not an idea. It's, it's not a, an idea. It's a push. It's a, it's a physical sensation that I'm going to become really miserable if I don't sit down and write. And then... And what form does it first take? Are you journaling when you then sit down to write? Are you free writing? Or are you immediately starting to write a story? Tell what happens. I I open my computer. My computer is a chaos of glimmers. And 
I, 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 I think of one. I think, oh, you know, I'm going to write that bottle, that frozen bottle. And so, I, I mean, that in that case, that's not how it happened. But, but I go to the frozen bottle. Or I'm going to write about um, the narwhals. I saw the narwhals in the Arctic. So I go in and there's my that's notes. In this book. That's in this book. Just, yeah. I, I go in and there's my notes for the narwhal. And I look at my notes and I think, okay, that's good. The narwhals might want to interact with the manatees, which used to drive my editor, Carol Hucksmith, my former editor who passed away, crazy. She used to be like, why can't you stay still? You know, But it's because I think about them in relation to each other. Or there, there's also a moment in this book where I'm talking about coating the side of the house with UV protector, because at 9,000 feet, if we don't do that every year, the, the logs fall apart. And in my mind, that went perfectly with this time when I was uh, in grad school. I wore a pretty skirt home. My mother hated it, decided to wash it in hot water so that all the colors would mute and it would shrink. So it became unwearable. And for some reason, like those two things absolutely go together in my mind, which was a happy writing day because that story about that skirt has been in like four other books. It's a glimmer that has fallen out of scenes and chapters in other books and it's it so finally vivid. found well, its home. it's so fucking vivid in this one. Maybe you needed it in a non-fictive construct. Con Maybe setting. so. Maybe and you needed to just actually say it. And that's true, isn't it? I mean, it's so true that sometimes the things that are very most powerful in fiction don't work in nonfiction and vice versa. And maybe that's right. So that particular little scene had fallen out of so many stories, but then it found its home. And that's the way the glimmers relate to each other. But but I really do, when I when I sit down to write, I'm like, okay, okay. I, I'm trying to think, um, you know, not so much analytically, but much more intuitively and associatively. So, so which glimmers want to come out and stick together? And then, it, so it sounds to me like when that process is happening, at first, you don't know if you're writing fiction or memoir. Absolutely not. And then you let the, you let the glimmers lead you? Yes. I mean, sometimes I don't know for a long time. This book, because this was a book that Norton wanted. Norton, my publisher, said, I want you to think about a book-length adventure. So unusually, I knew this book was nonfiction all along. That has never been true before. With Contents May Have Shifted, I didn't know when I turned it in what they were going to well, call it. Well, it doesn't read like either. Contents <laughs> May Have Shifted. <laughs> that makes me happy. <laughs> which I think is the airplane story in that one. Yeah. It is, right? Yeah. And that's what I thought. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember reading that book also. And oh, it, you mean the one I just said? Yeah, no, no, it's not. There is no. an airplane. There's no. an airplane story in that. There's many airplane yeah, stories, but not that one. Yeah, in that book. But I remember reading it and being like, "Wait, is this real or not?" Right. Uh, the whole book was con in a not in a bad way, in a good way. Yeah. Was um, unclear if it was fiction or not. Well, I was there were these little short stories. You know. Right. I was working with that. I wanted it to sit between. I mean, we we named my character Pam and we called it a novel. So I was. I was challenging the fiction, nonfiction, you know, that I was writing that post Jim Fry's Oprah hoo-ha. Yes. And I was saying, like, let's not be so sure that we have these two mutual Oh, is that when you said categories. the 83% thing or whatever? Well, I've been saying that all along. But, I mean, now, of course, we're in a world of trouble because of fake news. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting conversation over the years. This doesn't read like 83% true, though. This no. new book reads like 95%. I might go 98. Right. No, yeah. I, I mean, tried we my all compressed. 
But we all compress time, you know, we of all course. compress time no, or of combine of characters. No, 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 believe me, I, I, I am the priestess of we, you know, language can't represent reality. But, but I did my level best. <laughs> to tell the truth here. So I wrote down, talking about glimmers, after this thing about how you found your subject, I wrote right next to it, the next thing that popped into my head, was how do you fill your well of empathy? Because that is another thing where the reader is struck by, that you seem to, on the page anyway, empathize with everyone with whom you come to contact. Even, you even come around to trying to understand what happened the night that that guy killed the animal on the property. But in particular, you know, even when you're imposing on the vet, you empathize with him. How do you fill this well of empathy? How does someone with your background and with your awareness of, because I would say, running alongside of this appreciation of the natural world, as you said, the crisis that we're in, but humans' capacity for destructiveness is in every, is like the kind of opposite of every page in this book. Um, I feel it. You feel the, it's opposite while you're living here in this town. Because you often say, well, here's how we are here, almost in relief to how most other people live. So someone who has the awareness of, of our destructive powers, how does she find this well of empathy? How do you feel it? Um... You know, I, I think it's part of what my, where my childhood led me. I mean, I mean, I have two things to say about that. Like, when I, when I think to myself, like, who would I be if I had had different parents? Who would I have been if I had loving parents? Who would I have been if I didn't have abusive parents? The, the next question that comes right on the heels of that is, would I have compassion? Would I have compassion and empathy when I you know, for my students and their stories, for, for the people I see? I mean, I, I'm... I have thin boundaries, <laughs> and so I feel what other people are struggling with, you know, immediately, as I'm sure you do, too. I mean, most artists do. Um, but the other thing I want to say is, like, it seems to me, like, this is my first memoir, really, though my fiction, as you know, is very autobiographical, and I have a book of essays published, but but I think, like, the, the first order of business in a memoir, having written one now, I feel like I can make a statement like that, is self-implication. You know, uh, we're, we're in trouble because of a lack of self-implication in this country, in this world. And, uh, and when, you know, the essay where I tell about the guy who slaughtered my animals, you know, not two years later, I found myself having to slaughter one of my own animals. I mean, I mean, you know, Baldwin said all, all, all hatred is self-hatred. And I think that's, you know, I think that's the truism of, you know, of our time. So, so for me, like, I mean, I have to say, like, how do I fill my well of empathy? I don't know. Like, the older I get, the more permeable I get. And it's always there. You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I would say with the beautiful things in my life, with my animals and with my land, but I don't know that it needs filling. I, you know, I, I think probably, you know, one, one arc of my life in all that attempt to, to tell myself, no, you're okay, you're okay, 
you're okay, even though what these people said about you, you're okay, no matter what these people did to you, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. Like that constant voice has led me to see the okayness in everyone. I mean, if you can turn it on yourself, that's the hardest thing. But turning it on others, even people who are hurting you, that that's not hard for me. It really isn't. Um, and and I just want I want to be kind. You know, I I, I I I I was taught by a few people in my life to be kind, and there's nothing that feels better than that. I don't mean because of some altruistic urge, just because like. Kindness makes the endorphins. <laughs> well, there's there's this incredible um, moment when when you find someone who's gonna um, help you build your studio, mm-hmm. and he <laughs> takes it on himself mm-hmm. to do a job beyond your imagining. Right. And it's this return kindness to me. It's it's your way you place it in the book too. It's for me, it was your way of saying these glimmers that are out there aren't only things you can find for your work, but if you look, you can find these glimmers in the world and you should appreciate them. Right. And what they really are is these kinds of moments of great generosity and kindness. And it does seem like your work is always out there looking for those too. Absolutely. Well, I am as a person, you know, I'm looking for them, you know, and I, and I find them. I mean, that's what Martha Washington taught me, this woman who raised me basically she was like a babysitter who stayed for 20 years she she taught me to to see to see kindness coming at me which is why I have the ranch at all I could see when I got there in spite of the fact that it was a ridiculous commitment in spite of the fact that I had not close to enough money to buy it and no job I I could see that it was gonna be kind to me and you did it and me did it Pam Houston so folks do yourself a favor. Do a favor for someone you love. Buy Deep Creek. Give it to someone you love. Go back and find Cowboys Are My Weakness too, and um, read that as well. And um, Pam, what a delight and a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming and doing this. Thank you, Brian. It was fun. All right, everybody. Take care. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. You can email me at the moment, bk at gmail.com. Pam is on Twitter. What's your Twitter name? Yeah, uh, Pam. It's not exactly your name. Yeah. All right, figure it out. Uh, (laughs) And then uh, Pam's on Instagram too, and worth following there because she posts great pics of uh, the ranch and the animals. And um, hey, one thing we left out is if you're a dog lover, read the book. If you're a dog lover, read the book. If you're a dog lover, read the book. The book is a love letter to a great dog, also. Can I tell you one more thing? Anything you want. I, um, on. On the day I left on this book tour, January 23rd, I signed the papers to put the ranch in an environmental land trust. So for all the ways I was a marginal steward of the land over the last 25 years because of not knowing always the right thing to do at the right time, I feel I have made up for that because now the ranch is protected forever. It's fantastic. And that's, you mentioned that in the book as well. And um, it's really great. Pam, thanks for being here. And I can't wait to read your next book. Thank you, Brian. 